Victoria Moraga. Hi, everybody. This is Political Woman, a conversation with Mal Hyman. Are you worried about democracy in America? I am. It's like we've all gone a little crazy, and it's frightening. Maybe I think too much. Maybe I watch too many political shows. Maybe I watch too many Nazi documentaries. Maybe I read too much. Oh, my mother would say, you can never read too much. Yeah, read too much? Unthinkable. Right now, I'm reading Malcolm Nance, They Want to Kill Americans. I highly recommend it. I personally had to stop reading for a day or two because it's so upsetting. Think about the they, and who do you think about? Other people, somewhere else, who want to kill Americans? Oh no, it's us that want to kill us. Americans, hating Americans. What happened? It can't just be Trump. It's not that simple. It's not that simple that a white person becomes a racist or afraid after President Obama. It, it's, it's too simple. I have no answers. I only have the ability to read, ask questions, produce videos and podcasts. This is Political Woman. My guest is Professor Mal Hyman. He teaches sociology at Coker University in South Carolina. He's written a terrific book called Burying the Lead, the Media and the Assassination of JFK. I interviewed Mal Hyman earlier this August, and here's our interview. And I've interviewed him before. He's a great friend. And he is the brother of one of my best and oldest friends, Mark. Here's my interview with Mel Hyman. How much trouble is democracy in right now? Well, that's a great question. And I think it hangs in the balance because we've seen what Trump has to, the way he reacted after losing, the way his crowd has reacted to the loss in denial and disbelief. Uh, the Republican Party not cooperating in the investigation. The statements that were made just a few days ago about why aren't our generals like Hitler's generals. Uh, we saw somebody who was a tyrant and the middle class had enough escapism that they just hope, hoped that they could vote it out. A lot of people are in despair and they don't vote. And we have Republicans taking over secretaries of state in a number of, of states, so they'll be able to control the election results. And I think we're at a constitutional crisis now, but it's a slow crisis. It's unfolding, and we don't see uh, it in clear outline every day, but it's there. People who don't trust the system, whenever you move to rhetoric, like the Republican Party under Trump has, where you view 
Democrats as the enemy of the people, the enemy of democracy. The press as the enemy of the people, the enemy of democracy. And this is holding sway with large portions of the Republican Party. You've taken adversaries that used to work together and compromise and now made the public see them as enemies that are not to be compromised with. So if you compromise with them, you're compromising with the enemy. You've betrayed the party. And that's the mindset for the majority of the Republican Party at this point under Trump. When I ran for Congress, I ran against a guy who voted with Trump every single time, except he voted for impeachment after the insurrection. Trump came into the district to support his opponent in the primary, and his opponent won by a two-to-one margin. That is a message that all Republicans see. There's a fear of Trump. As Lindsey Graham said, the nature of elected office is you try to protect your position. And we've seen that with a lot of Republicans not taking on Trump because they want to keep their position. It's uh, profiles in cowardice or the nature of sycophancy or an anti-democratic tendency where people are choosing party and power above democracy. When you talk about it's a slow process, so people aren't as concerned about it, except some of us who just live, eat, and breathe this. But when you say that, I think the slow process is like um, the Supreme Court. And it was a slow process over decades of stacking the Supreme Court with um, anti-abortion zealots. And they did it slowly over a long period of time. Then Trump won. So he appointed, uh, he was calling the shots. And someone said, we don't have a democracy anymore. We have a Supreme Court that's running the country. And uh, what? And so what's your thought about that? And Deeply troubling, as I was saying about the Citizens United decision against the Federal Election Commission. It essentially allowed unlimited money to come in to elections, and you don't have to disclose your source. So Russians put money into the NRA, and it goes into Trump, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, because any foreign banker, actor, country can put money in our elections through political action committees, and we have no idea how much so-called dark money comes in. That was a Supreme Court decision a decade ago. Well, Supreme Court's made a number of decisions that are anti-democratic, all the way back to the Dred Scott decision or supporting slavery mm-hmm. um, or Plessy versus Ferguson. Mm-hmm. So the Supreme Court is given more power under our system than any other advanced industrial democracy. The hope was under our system when the Constitution was founded that it would be a check and balance on the legislative and executive branches, but they can abuse their power too. And I think what we've seen, and I want to be clinical about this, people moving into the Supreme Court that were willing to lie through the hearings, they were psychopaths, to get their position. And once there, 
decided that anything that they wanted to not consider as settled law, even if it had been law for 50 years, was still open to interpretation and they decided to be judicial activists in an elitist and anti-democratic way. And it's an institution that's now stacked six to three. There's nothing sacred saying that Supreme Court should have that much power or that it ought to be nine people on the Supreme Court. But you're quite right. It's a strongly anti-democratic tendency and they're going to be there for a long time. A long, long, long time. I mean, we could even say, and this would have to be an amendment to the Constitution, which is tough to push through under our system, that maybe Supreme Court justices ought to serve 15 years. Mm -hmm. They want, The notion was put them above politics. They don't have to right. run for election. But that's obviously not working. So like they're big fat liars. They all lied in the hearings. And then someone said, well, there's nothing we can do about it now. You know, you can't call them back, you know, because they lied under oath. It's one of the weaknesses of the way our system is set up. And it's a holdover from the times when the Constitution was founded. Along with the Electoral College that has four times right. given us presidents that had fewer votes, including Trump, which I say is an anti democratic tendency that gave states more power than it should have, particularly rural states uh -huh. that end up deciding the presidency. This would be a very different country if Al Gore was president and Hillary Clinton had been president. Right. And that's a what if that we need to ponder, but it's very tough to create these constitutional changes in our system. We are, as many political scientists have said, very slow moving when it comes to constitutional amendments. But yes, those are anti-democratic tendencies that, as you rightly point out, over a period of time, weaken the will of the public over government. And it's dispiriting. And a lot of people give up when that's the case. Of course, when they give up, the status quo has more power. I mean, that's part of the problem with youth voters that by a three to one margin want to have Democrats and they actually liked Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren a lot, but they don't tend to become involved and vote. I mean, a lot of power when we've had these breakdowns in our system, ultimately the, the breakthrough is the public gets in the streets and nonviolently protests. So we're doing that now in some cases. Women are doing that now. Um, I mean, we did have the police violence. We had people, but you know, then we also had the insurrection. Um, Cuts both ways. Yeah. Now I'd say the protests that you first mentioned are nonviolent ones. Right, right. Those tend to be the most effective under our system. And you know, it's just turn the clock back in the 20th century, women protesting mm -hmm. for decades to get the right to vote mm -hmm. and protests in the streets were a vital part of it. Mm -hmm. That's how we got the progressive movement, labor unions. I mean, that's how we got civil rights movement, mm -hmm. uh, the environmental movement. I, I was in college, Earth Day, 1970, <laughs> 20 million people in the streets. Mm -hmm. Biggest street demonstration in our history. 
and it led to three major laws under a Republican president because mm -hmm. he could see the public was infuriated and he could see the political winds were going to hurt him if he didn't compromise. Nixon didn't understand the environment, but he understood politics pretty well. And he made that change. And we've seen changes with the gay rights movement, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter. If you can sustain a movement with street organizing, we do see breakthroughs within a political system that's geared toward the wealthy and elites that stay in power, made worse, as you point out, by a Supreme Court that seems ideologically not just conservative, but reactionary. But what's going to happen if, and they, I mean, maybe it won't happen, but if Republicans win back the ha control of the House and uh, they get rid of the uh, January 6th committee and, you know, they're going to impeach Biden and we're going to hear, try to impeach Biden, and we're going to hear more about Hunter Biden, you know, and all, all of the stuff that right-wing uh, media saying is going to happen. Um, and we've got a, a president who's, I think, doing a tremendous, fabulous job, but his approval ratings are not good because I think it's a communications problem, but you know, whatever. And I mean, what's he going to be able to get through uh, with the House? Uh, You're right. And it, it brings to mind what Senator McConnell said about Obama. We're going to make this guy a one-term president. We're just not going to bring the bills that pass the House of Representatives even to the floor of the Senate. Right. Well, I think it's quite possible Democrats could control the Senate. But you're right. The House, they seem like they could well lose if things don't turn around more quickly. Maybe uh, Biden will get a bump from the current legislation. He didn't get a bump in popularity approval after he passed the infrastructure bill. So it's tough to tell. And I think you're right. If Republicans take back the House, they'll end the January 6th committee and they'll try to impeach Biden because it will allow them to control the narrative, mm -hmm. at least on their media outlets, mm -hmm. about all the things the Democrats are doing wrong. Even if it doesn't resonate widely with the public, you start to control the narrative once you run the congressional investigations, particularly an impeachment investigation. And that's why it comes back to your first question about the fragile nature of our democracy and the ongoing or unfolding crisis that we have, because it'll get far worse if Republicans are able to control the House and they control those investigations. They stop the January 6th investigation. And I think you're right. Biden wouldn't be able to get anything significant passed, which means Democrats will have a much tougher time holding on to the White House. And Trump is still the leading Republican who could well get reelected under this process. The, uh, some of the thought with the January 6th committee hearings is to run the political case as to what happened January 6th and the other uh, conspiracies prior to that. The fraud, the effort to influence the election in Georgia, all of these cases, uh, you could bet if Republicans control the House, they won't be investigating any of that. And the political case 
explained by Representative Jamie Raskin, who's on the committee, is that the January 6th hearing makes the case politically to the country. The Department of Justice is going to do the criminal investigation mm -hmm. and see if they want to prosecute. Well, that's a whole other set of questions. But to lay out the political case, to wake up the public, that's what the January 6th committee is doing. That would come to an end. Right. And it is possible that instead of other Republicans using what the January 6th committee comes up with as political ammunition against Trump, all that basically disappears right. and Trump is able to revive himself and try to run again. And now we have certain states where Republicans are controlling the secretary of state position, counting the votes. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of the people who've been elected are those who say the election was stolen. They're deniers. Right. Yeah. I mean, the election has been tried in 63 different court venues, and in 62 of them, many with Republican judges, they mm -hmm. said the election was free and fair, including absentee ballots and voting right. online. Right. We've done a good job with that, but a lot of the public severely doubts, doesn't believe that there's an election integrity. Uh, so, so this is an ongoing challenge to democracy. Uh, we, we aren't out of the woods. There's another decision coming up in the Supreme Court that could allow governors to override state legislatures. <laughs> wow. When it comes to the Electoral College. Wow. Which would mean in red states, you'd be able to have the governors make the determination as to how the votes were in that state to determine the electors for the Electoral College. Let me break that down in a different way. Let's say in the state of South Carolina, they were to vote Democratic. Now, they wouldn't because it's a red state. But let's say they did. Right. The governor and the legislature could say, well, we think there was a, an unfair election process and actually Republicans won. So we're giving, we're awarding those electors, we're appointing those electors as Republicans as part of the electoral college count, disregarding democracy. These are reactionaries that are in the Supreme Court. They are Republican ideologues that believe those questions are more important than the vote of the people, right. than democracy. I mean, the ancient dream of a free people that votes for its own leaders is why people fought in the Revolutionary War. And this is total and complete betrayal on the part of this wing of the Republican Party and the Supreme Court. What can we do to get young people who are the future to care about this stuff and come out and vote? Because... If they did, it would be a force. It could be a force. Democrats realize they have the advantage with younger voters, but they've yet to figure a way to mobilize them to get them out to vote. Uh, I think it can be done. They'll have to be more creative than they have been. 
and you have to work at the college level. It has to be ongoing with young Democrats and a very high priority. And I don't see the Democratic National Committee under Jamie Harrison recognizing that we have to be creative. We have to put resources into it. Uh, we have to figure online ways of moving through the channels that are influencing young people to get more engaged. They find the election process to be dispiriting, disgusting, divisive. I mean, across the board, everything. Um, I get questions from younger people. Um, what's, what's going on with monkeypox? Because the whole issue of monkeypox is not communicated very well. You know, I, I got calls from people saying, okay, what does it mean that it's an emergency now? You know, that it's a, it's a state emergency, a federal emergency. What does that mean? And I have to, I ex try to explain it out. Well, it means that we've got more money for research. We've got more money for communications. We've got more money, you know, that's going to help get the word out. But what, but how serious is this? And who's going to get this? Is it like COVID? You know, I mean, that's how poorly we communicate in this country about everything, not just, you know, and so, yeah, young, I mean, I can see why young people are just kind of turned off. Um, and, I, you know, it's an old, uh, remember that, are you better off today than you were, you know, four years ago or whatever, remember that campaign? It gets recycled whenever the incumbents can do better with that. Well. Or the challengers clearly can do better with that. But you ask young people and they say, it's always been rotten. You know, nothing's changed for me. Um, and so there, there's got to be a way where we can communicate with them. Well, you're right. They tend to be reading less and more polarized. So what we we're talking about before with the selection bias, um, there are different narratives that they're hearing. And there's not a good dialogue. We don't teach the skill of listening closely, respectfully disagreeing, compromising. Those skills aren't taught in the schools, let alone the churches. Um, so they're unprepared in a very divided society to deal with that. We also don't have labor unions that would lead rallies. Most churches aren't leading progressive rallies. So we don't have that leadership that's, that's inspiring folks. Young Democrats aren't very strong. Some are drifting to democratic socialism. Some are working on single issue. And it's hard to mobilize the youth. I think what we have with cell phone and social media is a revolution in communications. We're in the midst of it. Most people haven't mastered it very well. Those who master it try to manipulate it. Uh, and I think there are a lot of distractions for young people, even more than there were 10, 20 years ago because of the cell phone. Um, and it, it can be addictive, but uh, some of what they're reading is more akin to bathroom graffiti than it is wisdom, more heat than light, and it's tough to break through that. Mm -hmm. I agree with, with you. You have to find a way to do that because this is part of the process of turning our democracy around and regaining it. But it's much easier said than done. I mean, the, there are a lot of distractions. And until it comes up election time, it's hard to get a lot of students involved. 
And those who aren't in school oftentimes are burdened with low-wage, dead-end jobs where they're just trying to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. And political activism isn't high on the agenda. Mm -hmm. You know, if this isn't new, students typically rise up when things get really bad. You know, the Vietnam War, climate change, um, George Floyd. You know, when it's really unimaginably bad, then people say enough's enough. But maybe as... We mentioned in the Declaration of Independence, and this is a paraphrase, mankind is more disposed to suffer the evils of government than rise up to oppose them. We try to find different ways to work around it, to tolerate it, because it's so damn hard to try to change it. Where is there hope? Is there hope now? Where Give me some hope here as we close off. I, I think sometimes it's, darkest before the dawn. Nelson Mandela, who I think is is fair for us to to look at as a situation in South Africa that looked hopeless. He said, well, people are going to say it's impossible. It can't be done. It can't be done until you do it. Uh, St. Francis said that the beginning of hope is anger and courage. And I think sometimes it just takes a group of people starting to fight, and you never know when you're going to get traction. Amnesty International, that's in 190 different countries, started with a dozen people in a kitchen in London that were deeply concerned about human rights. I mean, Francis Marion at times had a dozen or two dozen men fighting with him, and the empire had struck back and it looked hopeless. So... I think within our own history and globally, you know, sometimes it does look bleak. I'm sure people in the civil rights movement thought pretty damn bleak. How the hell are we ever going to win? They lynch us when we fight back. And I think when enough people fight, things start to change. When the people lead, the leaders will follow. More change comes from the bottom up than from the top down. And I put my hope in the American people to defend democracy Although I see some pretty good efforts in Congress right now, but it'll take both from the grassroots. If we would have had with this last bill on climate change and medical prices for Mm -hmm. pharmaceuticals, if we would have seen 5 million people in the streets, that bill would have been crafted differently. People have to rise up and say, we don't trust the system and we will nonviolently tell you how we feel. And if anyone's listening out there and wants to run a national strike where you say we're not going to go to work on a certain day and we're going to be in the streets and you do that nationwide as they've done it in a number of countries and you shut the country down because people demand a change, all of a sudden you're the national news and your spokesperson gets to talk about it. And everybody in Washington knows, oh my God, we're losing power here. The public is on to what's happening. Somebody has pulled back the curtain. They get to see what the wizard is doing, and we're destroying the earth with this system. We're destroying democracy. We've tolerated people who work hard and have a wage that they cannot live on. We force that poverty. We force it on people. We have done that for a decade, and it's not even news. Until the public rises up, we hear about what minimum wage is on Labor Day, and that's about it. 
So if the public is willing to get engaged, and it's much easier said than done because most people are afraid of it, there still is freedom here to do it. Most, most of the time you aren't covered until you get good numbers. But I think the hope comes from the public reading, reflecting, praying, and acting. I'm in. Um, yeah, I don't understand even just to mention something in the, uh, the last bill. Why would the Republicans take out the provision to have lower insulin for? I mean, so it's dirty money, right? It's dirty yes. money from the uh, pharmaceutical companies. That's why we don't can't have affordable insulin. Uh, this is what they have the graphic up. This is what it costs. This is what other countries pay. And then this is what we pay. And it's criminal. It's my wife died of diabetes. I want to be clear. The entire medical establishment is doing what the pharmaceutical companies do. And it's $4 trillion a year business that no other country tolerates. They don't allow this to be in the private market because they create monopolies, raise the prices, incidentally, raise the national debt, and we have 50 million people that aren't properly covered in this country. It's still the major cause of family bankruptcies that people can't afford to pay for drugs or operations for loved ones. This is organized crime. This is done everywhere else where everyone's covered in advanced industrial societies. In Canada, they do it for two-thirds of the cost of what we have, have in the United States. People live three years longer than we do. The decisions are made at the provincial level, not at the national level. And conservative businesses in Canada realize this is a pretty good system for them because the American system costs more to do business. Conservative Canadian businessmen wouldn't give up their system, but you'd never know that in the corporate-owned mass media because they won't tell you the real story of what's going on in Canada. Any conservative businessman would be able to tell you that story. I agree with you. The pharmaceutical companies are using dark money and its special interests over the public interests. And the whole medical insurance business is doing the same thing. So the provision was in the original bill that the insulin costs would be capped, correct? Or that I think that's it. The, so it was in the original bill. And then Republicans stripped it out. They left in the Medicaid, uh, Medicare provision. So Medicare can negotiate for drug prices. Right. But people who have private insurance are screwed. You know, this is why in, in other countries, they decide that these decisions can't be left in private hands and they don't have that much dark money going into their political system. So you wouldn't have a special interest to be able to do something like that in the system in Japan or Taiwan or Germany or Holland, that wouldn't be possible. And it's understood that the government has to regulate these prices in the public interest and give a fair profit to the drug manufacturer, but also represent the public interest on this.
And, you know, some people say the British medical system is actually superior to the Canadian system because the costs there are even lower. And poor people in Britain have better health than the wealthy in the United States. So there's something to recommend that system. But the only one that really brings this to the popular consciousness is someone like Michael Moore in his documentary, Sicko. Other than that, it's pretty well marginalized. So the level of political discourse doesn't raise these important issues until once in a while, an intrepid reporter asks tough questions and we start to have a better dialogue on it. What do you say, I, and I know we have it on audio, but now that Mark's rolling on video, what do you say about what happened with insulin costs? at the Congress. I mean, should we take the names of all those people, which actually someone did, and I retweeted it. They named all the Republicans who voted to take that provision out to help people with diabetes who have private insurance. Uh, what do you say about that? What those Republicans did to Americans in this country who need insulin to live? Everyone has their friends that listen to them. Facebook, Twitter, communication, and that word of mouth where you can source it and you make it plain is very helpful in the dialogue. And it's a constant battle for hearts and minds. One of the things that the Republican crowd under Roger Ailes figured out is that political propaganda is constant. So that they're always attacking Democrats. They never stop attacking Democrats. Every single show, every single day, every single year under uh, Fox News, you'll see a page out of the Nazi playbook of constantly attack the other side. They use the big lie, constantly attacking and demonize the opposition party, demonize the Democrats as the enemy of the people, demonize the media as the enemy of the people. And it takes its toll. And one of the ways of fighting back is just as you say, letting your friends know, getting the word out on these things, sourcing it the best you can, make it plain. Sometimes sarcasm works, but a lot of times just information works. And we are in a constant battle for hearts and minds with a country more polarized than at any time since the late 60s and democracy as you rightly point out, is in the balance. This is an important time for people to get engaged. Jefferson said the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. I don't think you can separate liberty from justice. So I think that's a fine remedy for people to read and educate their friends on things. It's part of the process. Thanks, Bill. My pleasure. <laughs>